Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us in our What's New series. We are, Today, we are talking about what's new from the ASCO conference uh, that happened in June. Thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon, uh, wh- wherever you are, to join us. And uh, welcome back to some old friends that have uh, been participating in the conferences in, in, in these uh, series in the past. Today, we have something very special and I'll just go over a couple of housekeeping notes before we uh, hand it over to Dr. Wheatley Price. Today we have uh, live streaming and simultaneous uh, text translations. So if you would like to listen to uh, read this in a different language, please go up to your top left-hand corner, hit the live on custom live streaming service and choose your language. We will be closed captioning this in French, so um, you can read along in French or you can read along in any language that you choose. And as usual, we will hold all questions and answers until the end. So if you will uh, put your question into the Q&A box that is all the way to the uh, bottom right-hand corner and just type that in, we'll be sure to address all questions at the end of the session. Um, Note about the questions and answers. We cannot provide individual medical advice, but we are happy to talk about the questions in a general population sense. So without further ado, I am going to turn it over to uh, Dr. Wheatley Price. Thank you, Christina, and welcome everyone to the latest in our What's New in Lung Cancer series, where we're going to discuss some of the major lung cancer advances that were presented at last month's ASCO meeting. And to do that, I'm joined by uh, two guests who are um, long-term friends of Lung Cancer Canada, Dr. Gandara's uh, previously uh, been a guest on our Lung Cancer Voices podcast. Uh, he's a professor of medicine at UC Davis in California. He's a former president of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer um, and also a Team Science Award winner from the Bonnie Adario Foundation, which is one of um, one of uh, our uh, the patients' uh, groups and advocacy groups in the U.S., uh, and, and secondly, Dr. Stephanie Snow, who is uh, very well known to uh, our Canadian audience. Uh, Stephanie's an associate professor at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia uh, um, and a medical oncologist in Halifax. And uh, just a few weeks ago, she took over as president of Lung Cancer Canada. So we're in, uh, we're in uh, good hands to go through this. And David, I'm going to come to you first. Maybe could you just tell us and the audience, what is ASCO? Just to set the scene of what we're gonna talk about. Well, thank you, thank you, Paul. It's a great pleasure for me to join you and Stephanie in this broadcast. Uh, 
Canada and in particular Canadian oncologists. I, I have a fondness in my heart for you all. Uh, Paul knows that I, I've trained several Canadian uh, oncologists. Once they finish their fellowships in Canada, they've come to me and I, I just, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to interact with you at multiple levels. And I hope to actually visit Canada again. <laughs> Once COVID is behind us, uh, that would be fantastic. So to get back to the subject, uh, ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And this is my um, personal opinion, but I think it is probably the most esteemed cancer organization in the world. So although it's called American, it truly is international. And whether you're you know, in an academic position or at least in the United States, what we call private practice, almost everyone who is an oncologist who treats cancer patients, and when I say oncologist, I also am referring to surgeons or radiation oncologists or other specialties, they all belong to ASCO. So the ASCO annual meeting, when it is face-to-face -face before COVID would typically be around 40,000 individuals. So uh, absolutely gigantic. There are only about, because I was on the ASCO board of directors and I was treasurer, I can speak to this. There are only three conference centers in the United States that can handle an audience that large. So we were in Chicago every year. Uh, Orlando can handle it, but we don't wanna be in Florida in the middle of the summer. And also Las Vegas, which for tobacco consumption there, we prefer not to be in Las Vegas. But at any rate, ASCO has an annual meeting. It also has lots of other educational experiences. But essentially everybody, you get to see all your colleagues uh, in, at ASCO, and it's just quite an experience. Stephanie, um, what about for Canadians? I think we've heard from David, it's really international. How relevant, relevant would you say it is for the Canadian cancer specialists? Um, absolutely. So I think that uh, David did a great job. It's truly an experience. And because of that, it's also quite relevant for our Canadians because it's often the platform in which we're going to hear the latest breaking practice changing research. So it's actually going to change what we're doing in the clinic, how we're treating our patients. It's also a great um, opportunity to find out um, what some of the very interesting basic science research that's going on across the world other earlier phase trials, and it really helps us Canadians know what to look out for and what might be up and coming um, for us as well. So it's great. Now, that being said, there um, it is a general oncology meeting. So there's probably some other meetings that are more lung cancer specific that are also very relevant, for, though, of course, when that primarily comes to mind is the World Lung Conference, which is run, of course, of the ISALC, which uh, David used to be uh, head of there. And um, the course is a primary lung cancer focused meeting. There's a lot more space for a lot of the um, broader topics that impact our uh, patients who have lung cancer, such as advocacy and screening and survivorship. But certainly ASCO is incredibly relevant because it's these results that inform what we do to give our patients the best care. Okay, thank you. So, and um, what we're going to do in a minute is uh, I'm going to come back and forth between you as to what you thought were particularly the lung cancer highlights, the, the new research, the updated research that uh, was presented at the conference. Um, but, but before we get to 
research results. Um, Stephanie, I'm going to stick with you for this one. Um, the, the theme of the conference, there was a, an official theme. I'll just read it here. It was uh, equity, every patient, every day, everywhere. And there were some presentations, um, big podium presentations. I say podium presentations. Of course, it was a virtual meeting this year, so we weren't in Chicago. Um, but there were some presentations uh, about equity and describing how um, in, in the US, um, some African-American populations are less likely to get some testing, less likely to get into clinical trials. Um, there was some other presentations around um, different groupings that uh, seem to be disadvantaged in getting testing or outcomes. Um, you, as you take on the role of president of Lung Cancer Canada, I know equity is something that you wanting to prioritize. So I, I wondered if anything had come out of ASCO for you with that in mind. Absolutely, Paul. So um, we've always had a sense, especially in our very large country, that there has not been equal access to testing, to screening, and of course, with all our different provincial individual healthcare systems, not all provinces have equal access to drugs. And we certainly see that uh, dichotomy in um, large part when it comes to oral therapeutics, which are covered by some provinces and not by others. I think this is really crystallized by the CPAC um, report on um, equity issues in lung cancer that was published last year. And that was really looking at a socioeconomic and a geographic perspective showing that there's huge um, issues with equity in our country. And so, while we're very excited and thrilled to see all these um, presentations, we're really moving forward with um, get, seeing longer survivals and better treatments for our patients. I think that the other theme that really um, came strongly from ASCO that really will apply for us is we also have to make sure we're doing our best to make sure that what we already know is being applied and our patients are getting best access regardless of where they live or regardless of their socioeconomic situation. Thank you. Yeah. And for those listening, uh, Stephanie re referenced CPAC. That's the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer. You can check out their website for that report on equity. Uh, David, um, equity in the U.S. Um, with regards to access to treatments or access to lung cancer screening or surgeries, do, do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I think um, there are disparities and uh, we recognize that all of us try uh, on an individual basis to make sure that no patients are excluded uh, from various treatments. And, you know, even patients, uh, well, I can just tell you this, at the University of California, since we're a state uh, institution, if someone shows up in our emergency room from Mexico and they hand us a paper saying I was diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia in Mexico, and I'd like you to treat me, we cannot turn them away. We are obligated to treat every patient, regardless of their insurance status, regardless of whether they're a citizen or not. So at a local regional level, uh, you know, equity means uh, unbiased impartiality, and uh, we certainly do that. You know, nationwide, of course, uh, there are disparities in almost everything. Disparities in, disparities in COVID vaccination, disparities in many other uh, things. I, and I know we're not gonna talk politics today, 
but I, I'm very pleased that the current administration in the United States is trying to resolve some of these problems. Right. Thank you. Yeah, and I and I think uh, you know Stephanie said it well. From a Canadian perspective, is when we looked at ASCO and some of the research that highlighted equity issues. They were they were really U.S. based studies, but uh, it would be a grave mistake for us in Canada to think that we don't have issues with with equity around uh, geography, economics, indigenous populations. And if we didn't need any reminder, there's been some you know harrowing. Uh, news repeatedly in, in Canada over the last couple of months about uh, uh, residential schools and uh, stories, which we, no, it's not the topic of today, but it, it brings brings the, the issue of equity um, to, the, to the forefront. Well, let, let's move on from equity though and, and, and talk about um, some of the research. And, and then our job, I guess, when we go back is to make sure that that research can be applied for everybody. Um, so, um, David, let me st stick with you. Uh, what would you say is, is the, the, the most important lung cancer uh, study that was presented at, at ASCO? I have a study in mind, but I, I think um, maybe the audience needs a perspective first. And uh, this perspective is that advances are happening so rapidly in lung cancer, particularly what we call non-small cell lung cancer, that it's very tough to keep up with them. So there are a lot of things that were presented at ASCO, but I think the audience needs to appreciate that lung cancer is one of the most complex cancers and it's complex genomically, that is the mutations in the cancer, and it's also complex immunologically, and that'll be important for these first studies. Already, uh, guidelines uh, such as those from our NCCN in the United States suggest that every patient with advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer be tested molecularly for at least eight oncogenes that could be driving their cancer, which would mean that there is a targeted therapy, typically a pill, an oral therapy, that could be used in their cancer, either first line or down the road. So that's the, the beginning for this. But what's relatively new, and now uh, really, I think a huge advance at ASCO this year, is not the targeted therapies, but immunotherapy. Checkpoint immunotherapy, uh, a lot of you in the audience will recognize uh, these drugs. Um, I think one thing that patients um, and, and a lot of oncologists actually also are unaware of is that these drugs do not directly kill cancer cells like chemotherapy or even targeted therapy. They actually activate the immune system so that your own body, your own T cells, your immune system can uh, intercept that cancer. And uh, I was telling uh, Paul and Stephanie earlier how I talk about this to my patients, as I say, uh, many cancers act like a stealth bomber, if you know what that is. And the analogy for the stealth bomber is that radar cannot detect it. So this is what happens with these checkpoints, one of which is called PDL1, so that your immune system does not recognize the growing cancer as a cancer, does not recognize it as foreign, 
does not recognize it as something that it should go destroy. So a checkpoint inhibitor blocks those receptors and allows your own immune system to, uh, to do what it's supposed to do. So this is incredibly important. It's also incredibly engaging for patients because when we talk about chemotherapy, it's gonna kill the cancer cells. In this case, we are unlocking your own immune system so that you can take care of the cancer yourself. So with that being said, up until now, we've only had availability of this immunotherapy for patients with stage four, the most advanced stage, or stage three, locally advanced. What was presented at ASCO this year is a study called Empower 010, which tested one of these immunotherapy drugs, atezolizumab, in early stage patients after they had had surgery. So for 20 years or 25 years, our standard of care for a lot of these patients has been you would get surgery and then you would have four cycles of so-called adjuvant chemotherapy after. This study randomized patients after that to get the immunotherapy, atezolizumab, or not. And it showed that there was a dramatic improvement in what we call disease-free survival. In other words, that is not having a recurrence to the cancer. There are a lot of details about this study. I don't know if we really need to go into those because the message is that it worked. In other words, activating the immune system, even in an early stage cancer, allowed that immune system in, in the patient to interact with any residual cancer cells that could not even be detected by scans. In other words, microscopic disease. So Stephanie, I, I'd like your input too. I, I think that this, right now it's experimental. It's not been FDA approved. I think it will be approved in the United States. I don't know exactly for what subset of patients yet, but uh, I think it will be in advance and I think it will be used in the United States. I should also say before, before I turn it to Stephanie, that right now there's no difference in the overall survival which is just the recurrence, but it's early and we may not see that for years to come. Absolutely. Before you, before you jump in, Stephanie, can I just, just make sure that we're, we're getting this right bit between this recurrence and the overall survival because it, on the face of it, it sounds like a very positive thing, isn't it? That this would prevent recurrences. And so sometimes we think, well, if it will prevent a recurrence, why is it not changing the overall survival rate. And David, could you maybe just expand a little bit on why we might see less recurrences but not see a difference in survival? Is it, is it just we need more time? Well, it, it could be we need more time. It could also be that those patients who didn't get the immunotherapy right after surgery in this trial, if they recur, they then get immunotherapy. And so the overall survival is blunted. The survival advantage would be blunted because uh, they respond really well and live a long time after the immunotherapy. And, and again, just for the audience's sake, even a patient who has well-established recurrent lung cancer at five years and even eight years now for some of these studies, depending on 
what setting the immunotherapy was used in lung cancer. We're seeing survival rates that can be 30 to 40%. Now, we don't know 100% if they're cured, but what I'm saying is if you can give a treatment later, once somebody has widespread disease and maybe cure over a third of the patients, that's why you might not see a survival advantage. However, having said that, having recurrent cancer and having associated symptoms, pain, whatever it might be, and having to go through the treatment later when you're more debilitated is less attractive than trying to cure the cancer up front. And I'll just say in other kinds of breast cancer, or other kinds of cancer like breast cancer, many of the treatments that we give and we think are fantastic treatments, they don't improve overall survival, but they make the patient stay in remission for a long, long time. So uh, I'm, I'm a proponent of using disease-free survival or progression-free survival as being meaningful to patients. Okay, thank you. So Stephanie, Empower 10 the or 010, did you agree? Is that the most important study that was presented? And what's your insight? Well, I very much agree that that was one of the most exciting things that came out of ASCO this year. Um, I think one of the key words here is cure. What we would like to do is cure patients. And as we mentioned, this is still a very immature trial. This is just the first report. It's not only the first report from this trial, but it's the first report from any trial that's looking at immunotherapy for patients who've had surgery for curative intent for their um, lung cancer. So there's many other trials which have been completed and including our Canadian BR31, which we may actually have some attendees today who actually participated in that trial. But we're really hoping we're gonna see a wave of data supporting this. And personally, I would like to believe that we're going to see a cure. David mentioned that until this point, we had previously only had data for patients who had incurable stage four disease, but also for stage three disease. And of course, the stage three patients who have been receiving immunotherapy, um, they're generally treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. And just like the surgery for the earlier stage patients, that treatment is delivered with the intent of curing their cancer. And one of the other very important reports that we saw this year at ASCO was a report from a trial called the Pacific Trial. And the Pacific Trial was the trial that showed that if you got a year of immunotherapy after this chemo radiation and you had had a response to chemo radiation, that you actually did better. But because this trial has been reported in the past, this was very mature data. So this year at ASCO from Pacific, we saw the five-year overall survival. And that suggested that we actually are curing more people in this setting. At that five-year mark is what I say to my patients, you know what, we've treated for you for cure, we've done everything we can, but it's kind of the five-year mark. If you come and see me with your five-year scan, that's when you pop the bottle of champagne because the number of people who recur after that time point are so um, small in number. And uh, like the Empower 0110 in Pacific, initially all we had was data showing that patients were going a longer period of time before we saw their cancer coming back. And it took us longer to get to this, really what we consider to be the gold standard, this five-year overall survival. And the difference wasn't small. I tell my patients, you've got a 10% increased chance of being cured by um, 
added to the benefit of the chemo radiation when we add in um, immunotherapy with drovalumab in that setting is the name of the chemotherapy. So, or the immunotherapy. So I really think that that's one of the most important themes was this concept that immunotherapy has the potential to cure in stage three. And hopefully this is the first window into curing those patients with earlier stage who've had surgery. That's great, yeah. Okay, so Empower 10 is showing this, this reduction in recurrences, uh, not yet showing survival, but by giving immunotherapy after surgery. You've just said the Pacific study, so now we're into stage three. Initially, when first reported, just showed that sort of delay in recurrence, but now is showing a really nice cure rate improvement. And I think, David, you mentioned earlier that we've already know in stage four disease that people do well. So immunotherapy, would you say, David, I'll come back to you, is, is immunotherapy for everyone now, regardless of stage of cancer, of lung cancer? Well, um, I think no. <laughs> but... Um... Just back to the Pacific, I just want to highlight that the survival at five years was 43%. So that's almost half the patients. We know in earlier stage lung cancer, including stage three, that uh, almost all the recurrences occur in the first two years. So as Stephanie said, you know, we do sometimes see later recurrence, but it is very uncommon after five years. So you know, whether we call it cure or long-term survival, this is huge. If we can have over 40% of our patients uh, who are still alive, and, and uh, the majority of those, about a third, have never recurred at all after this treatment, then that is a breakthrough. So then back to the question about does everybody get these treatments? Uh, I think, you know, some oncologists, um, I would call lumpers. That means they want to give everybody the same treatment. And others are what are called splitters. I would guess that the two of you are splitters. I think a lot of our audience will be familiar with the term precision medicine or personalized therapy or individualized therapy. And that means trying to look, when we talked about equity, trying to look at every patient as an individual and saying, you know, Mrs. Jones, for you, I think actually treatment X is the best. But for Mr. Smith, in your situation, because of what I know about your cancer, genomically or immunologically, I think you should get a different treatment. So I'm a splitter. I'm a big fan of personalized medicine. And for immunotherapy, there are are a lot of factors. There are tests that can tell us whether patients are more or less likely to benefit. There are also mutations in a cancer which say, actually, you should be treated with something else, and you're not likely to fare well with immunotherapy. And I am sure that some of our audience uh, either has or is a caregiver for someone with EGFR mutated lung cancer. <clears throat> Those patients have targeted therapies, a host of them available to treat their cancer with oral therapy. When you put them on immunotherapy, they don't do well. And in fact, one of the big mistakes that can be made is to treat someone with immunotherapy because it's like uh, the best thing since sliced bread and ignore 
these oral drugs, which really do benefit patients. So uh, we could talk about this for the next three hours, but I don't think immunotherapy is for everyone. And those are just two examples of why. But everybody wants it. Patients come in. I've had patients, Stephanie, this will just give you a chuckle. I have patients with a newly diagnosed EGFR mutated lung cancer. And I say, you're so fortunate. It's bad you've got cancer, but you've got the most treatable type. We can give you a pill. And they say, you know, I don't want it. I want that new immunotherapy <laughs> where my body can fight the cancer. And I say, you know, it's, that's not the right decision for you. And patients, I think, once you explain all this, they understand. But um, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I, Absolutely. I do. I guess let, let me rephrase the question for, for you, Stephanie, in terms of um, should everyone get immunotherapy? So if we take out the groups that Dr. Gandhara was just describing, where there's a genomic um, abnormality or a mutation like the EGFR type where there are the targeted treatments, but for those where there aren't targeted treatments available, is now immunotherapy in one form or another going to be for most people stage one to stage four? Or am I being too simplistic? Paul, I really think that there will be. I think that there will be patients across the spectrum. We'll have to see where the data falls for those really early little stage ones, because of course those are patients with better prognosis. But I think with more confidence, I think from stage two and beyond, there is going to be a role. Now, like any medication, we've talked about some of the great things we've seen with immunotherapy, there can be adverse effects, there can be side effects, and they become quite serious. So I think it's always a discussion with patients about what are the risks, what are the benefits, and again, individualizing. Um, if patients have other um, diseases, that might be a very important factor to talk about as well. And then there's also the concept of the fact they have to take this treatment for a year. That may not be the right thing for a patient based on where they are in their life at that point of time. And getting back to the concept of treating in our very diverse geographic um, country, if you live across the street from the cancer center, it's probably not a big deal to run over every few weeks for half hour treatment. But in some of our provinces, patients are having to travel, you know, eight, 10 hours to get to an infusion center. So, but I definitely think we'll be having that conversation and ultimately the more patients we can cure. Now, the other thing, and I think we've seen a lot of this coming out of ASCO as well and in other meetings is that we're going to get better at predicting who are the patients who are truly getting the most benefit. And one of the things I'm most excited about is some research that's looked at the ability to draw blood on patients after their curative intense surgery. And for those patients, if you can still find cancer cells that are still circulating in their body, that might be a subset of patients who are really gonna drive a lot of benefit, but there may be some people where they can be getting a year of immunotherapy or you know three, four months of chemotherapy that they didn't need. And these, what we call circulating tumor cells really may help us as physicians to be even more precise. And to uh, speak to David, we can even potentially in the future be even further splitters. And so I think that's some very exciting research. We've seen some preliminary results, but this is the stuff to look out for from ASCO. Well, I, I can't resist, but David, I'm gonna to have to come back to you on this because you, you really are a global expert in liquid biopsies and the use of liquid biopsies and, and blood tests. Um, would you comment more on, on, on this idea of uh, after surgery using 
using blood tests or, or in other settings? Was there anything from ASCO that piqued your interest? Uh, well, I, I, I just want to follow up on Stephanie's comment first, because this trial we just discussed, so Empower 010, uh, blood was drawn. So that trial eventually will have data on what we call minimal residual disease about if patients had blood at the time of their surgery and it was positive, in other words, it showed mutations. And then a few weeks after the surgery, but before they got the immunotherapy, that same blood test remained positive or was negative. That's what Stephanie is talking about. Is it only the patients who had the positive circulating tumor DNA after surgery, meaning there's probably microscopic disease somewhere in their body, are those really the ones that benefit from immunotherapy? Or a year ago, if we were talking ASCO, we could also be talking about a trial called ADORA, for that EGFR mutation population that I talked about earlier, where the same sort of analysis is pending. So I agree with Stephanie. I think these blood-based biomarkers are going to be incredibly important. There are trials going on right now examining exactly what we're talking about. I'm not sure if in Canada you're participating in the mermaid study, for example, just as, yes. So Paul and Stephanie, you may want to amplify on that. But it's looking exactly uh, at this question. And then in the state, maybe we'll all stop here and get your comments, because then in stage four, it's a whole different ballgame. In other words, we're more advanced in terms of how we're using the blood biomarkers. Yeah, so well, the mermaid studies um, are uh, the two of them, a suite of studies with people who've had uh, early stage lung cancer resected and then looking to give the immunotherapy similar in a similar way to the Empower 10 study, but trying to figure out based on those blood tests um, whether people really need it or not. So if, if, um, if, if those blood tests are positive, people would get the immunotherapy. If they're negative, then they might be randomized to whether they need it or not. So I, we're, going, we're going to be certainly conducting that study in, in, in my center. Let, just, I'm just looking at my watch and in the, in the interest of, of time, I'm just gonna have one more question about immunotherapy and then we'll, we'll move on. We've mentioned the Empower 10, which is the early stage. We've mentioned the Pacific study, which was represented at ASCO, which is the stage three. But there were a number of studies of immunotherapy in stage four disease that I, and I just listed a few in preparation, Keynote 598, updates on Keynote 189, 407, 9LA, which are just sort of numbers and letters maybe to our, our audience, but there were a number of studies. Um, did any of them really uh, teach you something new that you would want to share? Um, David, I'll start with you and then, and then Stephanie. Well, the one that I think is unique is this Checkmate 9LA. And just to frame this for our audience, it's very common, as we already mentioned, that patients, if they don't have a so-called oncogene in their cancer, that they will be treated with a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy for stage four non-small cell, or 
depending on a biomarker called PDL1, they might be treated just with one drug, just the immunotherapy. So this 9LA is unique in that it gave the chemotherapy together with immunotherapy, but it's unique in two ways. One is instead of giving four cycles of the chemotherapy every three weeks, it only gave two. And then the other unique aspect is it gave a doublet, two different immunotherapy drugs together. So the checkpoints that we're ordinarily talking about, the anti-PD-1 or PDL one in combination with another category of immunotherapy called CTLA-4 inhibitor. Some of our audience may be familiar with it because uh, one of those drugs is used very commonly, ipilimumab and melanoma for patients who have malignant melanoma of the skin. So at any rate, uh, what was done at ASCO is when the study was originally presented and published, it was very immature, didn't have that survival data again. And they presented the survival data and an update on the study generally, and it looks good. I think it is clearly one of the options for physicians to use in the United States. I don't know how it's being handled in Canada. You guys can comment on that. But um, it is important because some patients who only get immunotherapy, if they're not going to be a very good responder, they may actually progress early, very early, just in the first couple of months. And we call that, I call it fast progression because that's what I've published on that definition. Other people call it hyper-progressive disease. But the point is that they need to live long enough to benefit from the immunotherapy. And some of them don't. And I call this the Kaplan-Meier gap. Now this is getting a little far-fetched for patients, but I'm just telling you, if the 9LA with only two cycles of chemotherapy eliminates the Kaplan-Meier gap. Now, you also get a doublet immunotherapy. So like I said, it's a double-edged sword. In other words, maybe that's better. Maybe that also adds additional side effects, as Stephanie was talking about. At any rate, if I have a patient with what looks like really fast-growing aggressive disease, I might pick the 9LA for them because it's gonna get the chemotherapy to get rid of that gap. And it's also going to give them the potential for double immunotherapy, which we know from other trials has pretty good long-term survival. And that's just my opinion. Okay. Last year we had a discussion with uh, Dr. Sanjay Popat about the 9LA and the, uh, the when we're talking about analogies, um, the analogy there was a zip line and just at the first bit of the zip line, there's some, some animals, some sharks trying to bite you. And the zip line, moving down the zip line smoothly is gonna be the immunotherapy taking you to a safe place. Um, but the chemotherapy, those first two cycles is that first push to get you quickly past those uh, snapping, uh, snapping sharks. Uh, 9LA- can I, make um, a, can I make a little comment about Sanjay? He's one of my favorite people, Dr. Poppett. <laughs> <laughs> At one of our big meetings, and I know you two will recognize this, he compared one of these regimens to like an HBO serial where you have season one and season two and season three and the characters change, somebody dies off, somebody new comes in, because this study had been analyzed so many times and it just cracked up the audience. 
Yes. In fact, that study was presented again at ASCO this year. The 9LA regimen for people listening is working its way through the regulatory processes in Canada. It has received approval from the health technology assessment process um, and it's waiting for funding negotiations. Stephanie, I I think actually in the interest of time, we're going to move away from uh, immunotherapy now um, to to targeted therapies. I, I think we don't really need to define that now. We've We've touched on it already, these uh, uh, specific mutations. We, before we were talking about a lock and a key the, 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 for, of the drug to, to treat those patients. What were the ASCO updates on targeted therapies that really um, were important for you? So I think that there was um, two general themes when it came to the data that emerged on targeted therapies this year at ASCO. And one of those was data for brand new targets or targets that we previously hadn't, we've been aware of, but hadn't been able to successfully treat, where we now saw data emerging that this is now a treatable group. And then I think that the other theme was um, some evidence showing what do we do for patients whose cancer gets worse after they've been responding to a targeted therapy for a while. So the kind of what's next. So getting back to that first concept, um, my practice in Nova Scotia is heavily a smoking um, or a history of tobacco use population. And that often goes along with a mutation called KRAS. And so upwards of 50% of my patients have KRAS. We've often talked about this as the holy grail of um, lung cancer because we hadn't been able to find drugs that target that. Now, KRAS um, is a very important molecule in cancer, and it can have a multiple different uh, mutations, each of which is different. So it's the, getting back to that concept of the cancer's fingerprint that, uh, that David likes to talk about. So one type of the KRAS mutations, it's got its very own name, G12C, recently has had a number of drugs developed that really seem to work. And so I was really excited to see the results of a trial called the Codebreak 100. And that was looking at a drug called Sodoracin. And this drug was being used in this subset of KRAS. And um, it's a a fairly decent number of um, KRAS patients. And ultimately, it makes about 10% of your non-small cell lung cancer patients. So if you're thinking about other common um, targets, it's not that different in terms of numbers of patients who can benefit as we see, for instance, in the EGFR population. So it's a big chunk of our patients. This was an oral drug. It was very well tolerated. And it was studied after patients who had received chemotherapy and um, immunotherapy, and it did show activity. Now, it's not the kind of home run that we've seen with some of our our other targeted drugs, but we did see um, about 35, 40% of patients responding. And some of those patients are responding for quite a long time. And so I thought that was really exciting because it's something that we have as another whole category of therapy for these patients who previously did not have any options other than our traditional chemotherapies and immunotherapies and often had a poor prognosis. And it's a little bit different because we classically think about um, patients who have targo mutations being in our um, non-smoking population. Um, But of course, this kind of opens up the door to a lot more of our patients getting a benefit from a drug that's well tolerated. And that 30% was, uh, it had a good, a really good shrinkage, the yes. bit, where it shrunk a little, but not as much. David, targeted therapies, um, KRAS, other things, what did you... Uh, right, I, I agree with Stephanie's um, comments regarding the, the KRAS drug, Cetiracid, 
it, again, I, I don't know about Canada. In, in the United States, it is FDA approved. And uh, of course, we're getting lots of experience with it. And uh, again, uh, it doesn't probably cure patients with advanced stage disease, but we're now learning why the cancers become resistant. And it's fascinating because it's very similar to these other categories of patients like EGFR. Uh, in some of them, there are new mutations that occur. We call them the resistance mutations. And in others, the cancer finds a way to get around the drug. So we call that bypass. And both of these are equally important. Some of them, we have new drugs or sometimes even old drugs that can target that bypass. So uh, there was a New England Journal of Medicine paper on this issue with one of the other KRAS drugs uh, recently. We're doing that study in the United States right now in part of what's called LungMap, the LungMaster protocol that I'm one of the uh, leads for, uh, to sort out what causes resistance and how do you get around it. And again, just one of my other analogies, uh, I'll tell my patients as I say, you're on a bus. And there's one bus driver, everybody else is a passenger. The bus stops midway through the trip. And one of the passengers goes up and takes over. That's your backseat driver. That backseat driver is the bypass mechanism. So if we can identify who the backseat driver is, we can take care of him if it's a cancer. So there's lots of data on that at ASCO. One of the regimens was what we call an ADC, an antibody drug conjugate, amivantinib, plus another drug against EGFR. And these are in patients like Stephanie mentioned that had EGFR mutation, and then they relapsed. And so we're finding out that that's the category of drugs, ADCs, that can get into the cancer because it's what's called a monoclonal antibody against a target like EGFR. But then it releases chemotherapy into the cancer. So uh, again, you know, it's like a smart bomb, maybe <laughs> if you're going to give an analogy. And we're finding that those ADCs now work and lots of different cancers. So whether it's that one specifically or others that were presented at ASCO, I think what it means is that we have more chances to be a splitter as a practicing oncologist. We have more chances to look for exactly what's going on in Mrs. Jones and figure out what the best treatment is because we, we, we're gonna have more things available. Thank you. We're going to move to a Q&A now, um, but just before Christina brings that up, maybe I could just bring people's attention to actually the, a couple of the previous episodes of What's New in Lung Cancer, um, which are very relevant to some of the, the points that Drs. Gandhar and Snow have just mentioned. So a, a few weeks ago, uh, there's the What's New in Rare Subtypes in Lung Cancer with Dr. Alex Drillon from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and Dr. Pani Chima from Brampton, Ontario. Uh, so discussing a lot of these, these subtypes. Um, and then earlier this year, um, Dr. Justin Gaynor from Boston and Dr. Cheryl Ho from Vancouver uh, um, discussed uh, resistance mechanisms in lung cancer, uh, the, um, the backseat driver, which um, 
not always a man, actually. Uh, my mum reminded me yeah, the other day quite what an accomplished backseat driver she is. But on that, Cheryl, not sorry, Cheryl, Christina. Cheryl was in the last, the last uh, webinar. Christina, back over to you for questions. No worries. Thank you so much for the discussion. And as, as uh, those that are um, have joined us before know, at this point of the webinar, I ask uh, Dr. Wheatley Price to take off his moderator hat and uh, join us for a seat on the panel because he is a very distinguished medical oncologist in his own right. And um, all this talk about early stage lung cancer actually has generated quite a number of questions for our from our audience. And I was just you know, as we, before we get into that discussion, and there's some just some questions on terminology, perhaps Dr. Wheatley Price, if you could just talk about the differences between DFS and PFS, which we hear a lot more about in later stage lung cancer. Okay, so yes, lots of terminology here. So sometimes we hear about stages by numbers, one, two, three, four, one being the earliest stage, normally a very small cancer, which hasn't spread anywhere. Um, and then as cancers get bigger or start to spread to either lymph nodes or elsewhere in the body, the stages go up. And it's sort of intuitive, isn't it, that the stage ones uh, are easier to treat and have better prognosis and stage four is the advanced stage. When we talk about um, disease-free survival or DFS, that's in an early stage lung cancer that has been removed after surgery. And it's the time period from the surgery until the cancer may or may not return. So if, if there was a recurrence after three years, the disease-free survival would be three years. Progression-free survival, we, we use as a sort of um, cousin, if you like, of DFS for patients who already have cancer, which is under control. So it's not progressing, i.e. progression-free. And so we might say, okay, you're on a treatment and it's controlling the cancer for three years, the progression-free survival would be three years. So D DFS, disease-free survival, if the cancer's gone and we're looking to see if it comes back, progression-free survival if the cancer is there and we're wanting to stop it getting worse. Perfect. And, and while we're on the topic of early stage lung cancer, Dr. Gondara, there's, there's a, a Question from patient two is, what about patients who were treated with a lobectomy? And um, um, for example, two years ago with early stage lung cancer, it was never tested for mutations. So should blood be drawn for minimal residual disease to see, talk about circulating tumor cells um, during the yearly lung scan, or uh, is it too late for these patients? Right, so th this is common because things happen in medicine, not mm -hmm. only oncology, and if you had a cancer or a disease before that, it was not done. It would have been considered highly experimental. It would have had to be part of a clinical trial. So for this particular patient, they had the appropriate therapy. And at this point, if they have not had a recurrence of their cancer, then there would be no reason to do another intervention. We don't actually know two years out if we got blood and analyzed it, what it would tell us. Uh, so I, I, I'll ask our other panelists also to chime in. No, nothing is ever as simple as it seems. And in these blood tests, there are some abnormalities that can show up that are actually what are called germline. That means they're part of your, your DNA. 
without ever having seen a blood test on this patient before, if you got something back that was misinterpreted as being from the cancer, when really it's part of your normal DNA, then that could create anxiety and, and maybe needless intervention. So um, I, I would not recommend uh, testing. If this patient had been diagnosed last week, then we're, it's an entirely different situation. Dr. Snow, Dr. thoughts on that? I just say that I fully agree. Um, and a patient who's two years out, we really would know what to do with those results. But the good news for that patient is it's just a blood test. Um, it's not somebody's coming with symptoms. And, and if they had a very aggressive residual cancer, in many cases, it already would have shown its face by that time. It might make me, if somebody happened to you know, pay out of pocket to get a test, it's not something we routinely do. I might watch them a little bit more carefully if they found out, but we might be doing that for absolutely nothing because we just don't have the evidence to tell us what to do in that situation. Um, so really what we're hoping is that um, as we get more and more patients, as Dr. Wheatley probably said, if we're treating everyone across the spectrum, we're gonna be finding ourselves in less of these unknown areas in the future. Dr. Wheatley Price, any other thoughts on that before we move on to the other? Well, I, I think I concur. We, you heard earlier a, a, a term used called Kaplan-Meier gap. Uh, a Kaplan-Meier curve is, is basically a graph over time. We look to see how many people are still alive or, or, or haven't had a recurrence. And so, you know, a lot of recurrences happen in the first two years. So if, if you're at the two year mark now, well, firstly, uh, congratulations. Um, your prognosis is already looking better. Um, and I, I guess it is frustrating, isn't it, when we see something that uh, looks great and we've just kind of, we're just a bit late for it, whether it, um, you decide to cheer for a new sports team, but it was last year that they won the Stanley Cup. And, and that, that can be frustrating, but I, I think really probably the prognosis would look good at two years. Not, not in the clear yet, but a good start. Dr. Cantero is talking a little bit about how things um, uh, evolve very quickly and it's hard to predict into the future, but when we took uh, one of the areas that evolves really quickly, especially is in the stage of early lung cancer and what, and what we can give in early lung cancer. So some of the questions that we've been getting are, we're talking about giving targeted therapy in early lung cancer. We're talking about giving immunotherapy in early lung cancer. But what if you're unfortunate and your cancer progresses to stage four? Have you lost your chance at immunotherapy or uh, targeted therapy in that case? Maybe I'll pose that question to Dr. Snow. Absolutely. So um, I think David mentioned this earlier that we still do use those treatments in patients who have cancer, which has recurred and generally is not curable in that situation. And with our more modern treatments, what we're really seeing is a lot of people who are able to live well with their cancer for a very long time. And part of what we're um, really hoping and chasing with immunotherapy especially is then we call the tail on the curve. So that Kaplan-Meier curve that Dr. Wheatley-Price had talked about, the graph that shows how many people are alive at a certain point of time, while other cancers such as melanoma who've been treated with immunotherapy, there's a tail on that curve that there's some patients, even though they had incurable cancer, are still alive at the 10 year mark with no signs of active cancer. 
But we're hoping that as we get more and more data, we're going to see more and more people who are living longer and longer, and theoretically with stage four disease, but living their very best life. And oftentimes not even on treatment anymore. In terms of our targeted treatments, as we get more and more information about how to modify what we're going to do when patients progress on one particular targeted drug, if there's another one, and then how do we switch back and forth and how do we do that to make the best decisions based on what the cancer is doing, figure out who that bus driver is right now. There can always be a third guy who came up and took over the wheel. So our ability to actually reassess that will um, hopefully help our patients, even when their cancer has come back and is not curable. But Dr. Really Price, I know one of your um, pet um, uh, things is is coverage and health technology assessment. How do we uh, how do we uh, encourage? How do we prove to our uh, health um, uh, payers that these treatments are worth it? Well, I mean that's a good and always evolving question because you know we we work really hard as Lung Cancer Canada to to fight for access for new treatments and I, I think we're seeing some positive changes in the in the Canadian environment that the regulators are now willing to look at some of these very small subsets of of lung cancer where uh, they're very uncommon but there are effective treatments um, and uh, I think it's going to be easier for them to. Uh, approve some of the, the treatments that we've heard about, the major, the major advances in, in immunotherapy, because those studies are a, a, lot, a lot larger. So maybe I, what I could say to people at Lung Cancer Canada will continue to, to support access to all new treatments and lung cancer screening, as we have done in, for every new lung cancer indication in the last decade. But we do, we do need help. And so if there are patients who are listening who have been on some of these trials or received these treatments, and you would like to help us, um, we would love to hear from you. We do know that the health technology assessment, the regulators, they do listen to patient voices and it really helps provide context. Uh, so if, uh, if you'd like to help, um, please get in touch at the lungcancercanada.ca website. Um, we're coming up to the top of the hour, and so I'm going to throw one final question out to the panel, um, and I'll, I'll start with Dr. Gandara. Dr. Gandara, I love your uh, analogy about being a splitter, and there's lots of and comparisons made from uh, with personalized medicine in in in, in ca lung cancer to personalized medicine in HIV. So, how far away do you think we are from truly taking that blood test at every appointment and taking a look at your mutations, and then being able to truly personalize your treatment? Are we looking at 10 years? Are we looking at 20 years? And I'm sorry, um, I think maybe we're having a little bit of a problem with the with maybe my internet, but I got the gist of the question. I, I think we're there now. In other words, we've been there in lung cancer, so we're fortunate. You know, lung cancer, nobody wants to say you're fortunate to have lung cancer. But by comparison to a lot of other cancers, we do have so many options now. And, and how I explain this to other oncologists is if you don't look, you won't find it. So it's not only having the treatments available, it's using the diagnostic test that we have to make sure that we've given that patient every opportunity. And, and like I mentioned earlier, every new patient with non-small cell lung cancer that comes in, at least what we call non-squamous, uh, should be tested with what's called next generation sequencing that it gets all of these abnormalities that could be important. And to go back to your previous question about 
cost effectiveness. It's now been shown that that sort of testing is extremely cost effective. In other words, you find the best treatment for that patient. You don't miss it. And the patient outcome, number one, the quality of life is better. And number two, the outcome, meaning survival, is much better if you give the patient the treatments that, that they're best designed for, in other words, that fits them. So I think we're there, Christina. And Dr. Wheatley, um, ASCO had a lot of exciting um, advances and, 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 and things that have come out, but was there anything that you were looking for that was not shown or any things that any data that was missing that you felt really thought, you know what, we have to do better for these patients. We have to, we have to fill these gaps. You know, it, I'm not quite sure I have a good answer for that. I think Dr. Gandara said earlier that the pace of change is, is, is so rapid now. We're seeing new things all the time. A year ago, it was this Adora, the, the EGFR drug, osimertinib in early stage disease. Um, six months ago, uh, we were learning about combinations of immunotherapy in a rare chest cancer called mesothelioma. Now we're hearing about immunotherapy in early stage lung cancer. We're hearing about new drug targets. I think that pace of change will continue. Our job is, is really going to be in the implementation and making sure that these amazing advances are, are truly translated into everybody with lung cancer in Canada, in all provinces and territories, having access to screening, having access to these next generation sequencing tests, having access to immunotherapies, targeted therapies. And uh, so I, I think, you know, it's all happening so quickly. It's a really exciting time uh, to be in lung cancer as a physician because we're helping so many more people, but we can't take our foot off the pedal. And when we're talking about implementation, Dr. Snow, what would you like to see in Canada that we can implement so that we can have more equity? And so I think it would be great if we're able to really look and hear from each province and to see what are the issues that have been that have been um, keeping them or certain aspects of their population from getting access because it's a different story to hear across the country. And so it might be a matter of educating the payers. It might be a matter of making sure that patients have the support that they need to travel, to um, get different treatments. So I think a big part of it is um, us listening and saying, what can we do as an organization in order to facilitate that. So Dr. Snow, that's a perfect segue to close out this webinar. I'd really like to thank Dr. Ganara. I know he has to jump off to another webinar for giving us so much of his time today. And um, I'd like to thank Dr. Wheatley Price for um, coming in all the way from the UK. I know that uh, I know that he um, has uh, been taking this opportunity to visit his parents who, who haven't seen in a long time and Dr. Snow who is tuning in from on vacation. And on that note of listening and listening to everybody um, as, our, our, as the new president of Lung Cancer Canada, Dr. Stephanie Snow is launching a listening tour and would love to hear from every patient uh, that uh, will, is able to talk to her. And so the first of that listening tour starting right in her backyard and with the Atlanta provinces on August the 6th, 
starting at 1 p.m. Quebec um, is uh, was scheduled for August the 13th, followed by Ontario and Manitoba. We're just going right across the country. And the last one, which is Saskatchewan, Alberta and BC on August the 27th. To, so to sign up for those, please drop us an email at info at lungcancercanada.ca or please reach out through Dr. to Dr. Stowe's um, um, emails at president at lungcancercanada.ca and her Twitter handle. So on that note, I would love to thank everyone for their time today. If you have missed this webinar or would like to revisit it, we are going to put this up on our YouTube channel, have it up on, on, on our podcasts. And if you would love to volunteer or donate or help uh, add your voice to uh, Lung Cancer Canada and share your patient story, please visit us at lungcancercanada.ca. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Stephanie. And thank you, Christina, for getting us all together. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.